sin still happens in those cultures too. And it's actually going to happen anywhere. So just rebuffing a specific theology isn't going to do that which our ex-evangelical friends want it to do. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm actually just introducing the podcast today. I was unfortunately unable to participate in this conversation. Joining Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina, is the Reverend Dr. Dustin Messer of All Saints Church in Dallas, Texas, a parish in the Anglican Mission in America. Dustin is on the show today to discuss an article he wrote for the Gospel Coalition called Move Beyond Exvangelicalism. He'll introduce himself a bit more during the show. He and the guys talk about his article, Exvangelicalism in General, Modern Day Pelagianism, Defending the Gospel at the Point at Which It's Being Attacked, and the Brilliant Strategy of Turning Every Conversation into a Bible Study. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Here's Matt. Uh, thank you, Nick, who is actually not here um, in the virtual studio with us, uh, but we are super happy to have, have Dustin here. Um, why don't we start just by having uh, Dustin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're serving now, a little about your ministry, and um, and then we'll get into more uh, of what we're planning to talk about. Yeah, thank you all for uh, for having me. I was sad Nick wasn't wasn't here. This is like one of those Dukes of Hazard episodes where Coy and Vance is on instead of Bo and Luke. People tuning in <laughs> with no with no Nick is a pretty sad deal. But uh, I if yeah, anyone I, in the history of that show actually preferred Coy and Vance over uh, Bo and Luke. I mean, I oh yeah, like you, is there you, like some sort of subreddit somewhere where they're like the true I'm Dukes? Sure. Anyway, sorry to mean sure. that, that was just a wonderfully record. obscure reference. And I loved it. <laughs> Uh, I have one more thing to be, say about Starchy and Hutch at the end, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for now. Now I'm here at uh, in Dallas, Texas. I serve as vicar of All Saints Dallas. Uh, Matt and I were just talking a little bit ago. We're a, a downtown uh, church, and uh, it's been a real honor to to serve here. I also get to teach at Reform Seminary's Dallas campus here. I teach apologetics, and then I teach uh, kind of the Christianity Society course at the King's College in New York. And so between those things, I stay, I stay pretty, uh, pretty busy, but it's a real honor to, to chat with y'all today. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, you, uh, you recently wrote an, wrote an article for uh, the Gospel Coalition that uh, we found you know, really fascinating. I thought uh, we'd love to hear, uh, hear you talk about it in person with us. It's titled, um, it's entitled Move, Move Beyond Exvangelicalism. And I think most of our listeners would know what an exvangelical is, but just for the the person who might not, what what's an exvangelical? Yeah, was well, the name kind of suggests an exvangelical is someone who grew up in the culture of evangelicalism, and probably with the theology of evangelicalism. Though I think sometimes it's less the theology of evangelicalism and more kind of a subculture called evangelicalism. And they've moved beyond evangelicalism. And the thing to which they've moved is uh, what's called exvangelicalism. And part of the problem with exvangelicalism, I think, is it's really hard to say exactly what it is. You can say what it isn't. And that's where people get in trouble. They say, well, I'm not an evangelical. So they start pointing to what they view as sort of markers of evangelicalism. 
and rejecting that. And I was telling someone just a, a couple of weeks ago who would not know that I wrote something on exvangelicalism, very not tuned into kind of Christian conversations in this sort of way. Wouldn't listen to this podcast. No offense. Uh, probably doesn't even watch Dukes of Hazard. Deeply offended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's just like 17 strikes in a row right there. Yeah, yeah. But they not said, some, so in other words, not someone I'm interested in meeting. That's what yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay, good. Let's no, but they said they, they were sort of talking about how, you know, well, I don't believe in sort of, and they kind of laid out a traditional sexual yeah. ethic. Inerrant, oh, were, sexual ethic, right. A sexual ethic. And, you know, I just, I thought to myself, I think in their head, they probably know someone like Jerry Falwell is. They think they're rejecting Jerry Falwell, but they're actually rejecting like Thomas Aquinas. And I mean, they don't even have that in their head, but they're just sort of throwing off the whole of church tradition, thinking they're throwing off a small subculture. So that's broadly what I think exvangelicalism is. Yeah. Now, give me a little bit of background. I mean, I can imagine, but the the Genesis, you know, your first editorial pitch or did someone come to you for this article or you, was it just like a a project that you wanted to address? I mean, I I can imagine a combination of all that, but like, tell us a little bit about how it came about uh, for, because it came out on Gospel Coalition, right? Is that, I'm I'm not Yeah, I think I wrote uh, the Gospel Coalition had an article on why a gentleman, a pastor was not having services on Christmas. And so the gospel coalition asked me to write one about why our church was having church on Christmas. And so I think just after that, I sent them this one on exvangelicalism, just sort of because I was talking to him, but just like the origin of it, like y'all, Anglicanism, my entry to Anglicanism is very not typical of someone in my cohort. I think I entered very much through sort of Sydney Anglicanism, self-consciously evangelical Anglicanism, but you know, a lot of folks in our kind of general cohort come to Anglicanism thinking they're escaping evangelical markers. And so I have those conversations, you know, we're, we're a, a very, our, our average age at All Saints is pretty young, and we have a lot of folks who grew up evangelical, some of which are, are very thoughtful people, but they they no longer would view them as evangelical. And so just as a pastor, I really try to help folks. Definitely, Scripture is our, our sole authority, and we want to hold all traditions up to Scripture, including evangelicalism. Uh, but as, as indicated earlier, you know, there's, uh, I'm still an evangelical, and, and I believe that uh, our articles and homilies and, and prayer book, you know, uh, Packer used to say, that the, that the Anglican liturgy is the evangel, the gospel put in, in liturgical forms. Right. Uh, and so anyways, I, yeah, just talking with those sorts of folks and having those conversations, which is a few times a week, I bet I'd love to hear from y'all. How often do y'all talk to folks who are visiting your church? Actually, no, Nick, I was in Nick's house not that long ago. And he and I talked about this. How often do y'all have visitors at the church who are hoping your church will be sort of an escape hatch from their evangelical right. well, upbringing? Well, Nick and I talk about this a lot because we, I mean, you went to boys college, am I correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. So we were, we were there obviously at St. Francis in Louisville mm-hmm. um, and we would have visitors from, um, you know, anthropological explorations from the Baptist world every now and then coming to see what, um, you know, this, this liturgical world was like. And, 
you know, sometimes they'd be very straightforward and say, well, we're just visiting, you know, we've got, you know, we have a friend of ours, mutual friend is professor or whatever said, this is a good church. We wanted to come check it out. And we're going to go as quickly back to third Avenue as we can um, or something like that, <laughs> you know, sojourn. Then every now and then we get people who are on this, you know, what they thought was a Canterbury trail. And to your point, it became very clear, very quickly that they were not looking for anything like classic um, evangelical Anglicanism, you know, cause they'd start with something like, you know, well, I grew up hardcore Baptist, or I used to be an evangelical or some sort of marker that was intended to sort of show them, show me that they were on the right side of history in certain respects. And we we would politely, but with very, um, with expediency, sort of keep moving them on. You know, there's like, there are another number of other yeah. churches that are, is what you're looking for here, because um, I appreciate some of the excesses of what has passed for evangelicalism, particularly in America. You know, when you think that like, Somehow Joel Osteen and J.I. Packer could be roped into the same theological category as evangelical. You know, you say, well, there's there's clearly no real meaning to that word in that respect. Um, so I'm sympathetic to how it's been misused or sort of abused in a certain sense. But but with you, you know, I make the unabashed claim that, you know, this is one of the few titles that we've received down through the ages with respect to church that are actually biblical. I mean, the Evangelion is actually in, in the Bible. So, you know, I mean, Lutheran isn't, I mean, Episcopos is obviously, but these, these various um, uh, names for, for the good news, uh, we, we have it on divine authority that we should not let this go. And so to, to continue to, to talk about the distinctives and the, and clarify the terms is important, but I'm with you that I think that um, whenever, well, you didn't say this, but for me, when someone comes in self-consciously, when the very short order says, well, I'm no longer an evangelical, like I'm always, my radar goes up and I say, no, I'm not, and I'm, I've got like, you know, nine out of 10 times right here, you're about to say something that um, you know, is, is unsurprising and, you know, damning uh, to your to your soul, probably. But um, but that's just an experiential thing. But at this point, it's almost 100 percent. But I, um, I have anyway. noticed, though, I mean, there's some there's some either rumor out there. Or there's some kind of uh some kind of vibe we're giving off as Anglicans where people who are in in a more strict evangelical environment think oh i'll become an anglican because they don't have any rules they don't have so mystic and 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 fuzzy being an anglican and ancient so there's there's, i think there's a a cloud of ideas that surround anglicanism in a lot of people's minds that makes it attractive and then when they come to maybe a church like jd's and they realize oh wait this guy is serious about things like the 39 articles he has actually some some firm boundaries doctrinally yeah then they'll continue that journey until maybe they eventually end up in the episcopal church they end up somewhere else um, but what is it? So, so what, in your opinion, you mentioned this new article, but you say that you say part of this is, is a reaction. Part of the problem with ex-evangelicalism is it's a reactionary identity. And that's why they really can't find a home in a, in a, mm. in a tradition that has boundaries, whatever that tradition might be. What would be some of the things you think in your experience anyway, that you've seen people reacting against in evangelicalism? that they that they want to move as far away from as possible um, when they're yeah. moving on. I'll name a couple of things, but this may this may seem out of nowhere. But I think the biggest problem of our age, the biggest heresy of our age, is still just kind of basic Pelagianism. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is I think most people, Christian or not, go through life thinking that we are born, you know, man is born free everywhere, finds himself in chains, that we're born sort of perfect. And if left alone, if not for systems and structures that sort of incentivize corruption or, or positively cause corruption, everything would be fine. 
So I think that's a general sort of cultural problem applied to Christianity. People see bad things that happen in their church that are legitimately bad. And I, and I know y'all would never make excuses for some of the awful things that have happened in evangelical churches, abuse and so forth. But we have in the back of our mind, kind of this general Pelagian, you know, man is born innocent and it must be an external force or culture or thing that made that bad thing happen. And so then if you do that, if you just think, well, you know, the reason my pastor did that was because of something inherently and intrinsic in evangelicalism. Well, then of course you just rebuff evangelicalism and then you kind of do away with (laughs) sin. And the problem is, you know, none of us are Pelagian. We're we're Augustinian. We say, well, we actually have this sin nature and you guys know this. I mean, y'all spent time in in the Episcopal uh, church, you've been around some of the most, you know, progressive quote unquote enlightened folk in the world and abuse still happens in those cultures too. Sin still happens in those cultures too. And it's actually going to happen anywhere. So just rebuffing a specific theology isn't going to That's do right. that, which our evangelical friends want it to do. That's, that's such a great point. I love and I love that section in your article where you you compare a friend you had who had an atheist father who who beat him or her, and another one who had a fundamentalist uh, parent who who did the same. And it was not the theology. It wasn't the the philosophy. It was it was a, the a, the essential sin nature right. that 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 you find in any tradition, any philosophy, any any church structure. So that's um, that's fascinating. I was, I was reading. I think it was Beth Allison Barr's one of her Twitter things about how complementarian circles are inherently, inherently abusive. You're going to find more child abuse, more abusive, more, more, more misogyny in evangelical circles. That are right. The Hollywood producers Academy is like, hold my, hold my <laughs> right, right. right, right. Well, I mean, and that, and I, <laughs> to just your point though, I was raised, I've been, I've, I've only been a Christian since I've been 26, but I've been in the Episcopal church since I was three. And hmm. man, I can tell you, there, yeah, there's lots of abuse in in, in yeah. egalitarian progressive church like that. There's a lot of uh, misogyny. There's a lot of sexual stuff that should be going on. It's not the prize possession of of evangelical complementarians. It's it's everywhere, and because because we are um, sinners, and that and that which that should do, I think, and I I wish it would do for some some of the people, all of the people who are who are retreating to trying to find some more uh, a pure a pure expression of, uh, of human morality in some kind of church structure. I wish that would, what that would do is a drive into the cross and they, they, they could yeah. say, okay, well, you know, what I'm seeing reflected in my church, I, I, I even have some of that in myself. I have a lot of that in myself. And that tells me we all need Jesus. We all need, yeah. we all need the gospel. We don't need to try and make a better, well, we, okay. Yes. We always want to try and make the structures and the systems we have better. We, we do, but we also have to, at the end of the day, have to recognize we're not going to succeed in eradicating the, the, the main thing that you guys are reacting against. And the main thing you're acting against is sin and it's in you and it's in me and it's, it's, it's universal. And if you, ironically, if you make the sort of theological construct, the problem, what you'll wind up doing is making excuses for the sins of folks who just agree with your progressive ideology. Right. And then you become actually kind of a little ecosystem that protects abuse. I don't know if y'all saw the, the two popes movie, but just with Benedict's death, I was thinking about this 
the movie cast Benedict as this kind of, you know, Luddite regressive figure and Francis as this kind of liberating person and kind of like the movie excuses a lot of the really bad things that Francis has covered up <laughs> and then neglected. And so it's kind of, you they know, have to, it, right? yeah, it's like doing the sin that they feel like the Catholic church has done, which is sort of covering for your own, but because Francis they viewed as, is more kind of enlightened progressive or whatever, they actually excuse a lot of his sin and cast it on, on Benedict. And I just think we all have to kind of just be honest about, yeah, evangelical churches and leaders have, have failed and we need to call those failures as such. But in doing so, we don't, we have to just ask the question is evangelicalism and the claims made therein biblical and true. And if they are, we believe in them. And if, if we're not, we don't. Well, you know, I think that gets precisely to the point that they would come back at the evangelicals by saying that there's not only hypocrisy, but a misappointment of uh, severity of sins. You know, they would say that the, you know, the old classical distinction that I remember being taught, or at least it was in the conversation back when like Brian McLaren was in this and it was the new kind of Christian, all this stuff, excuse me, was that conservatives were more into, were more concerned and worried about um, interior sins, you know, lust and not even greed, but lust and and maybe just lust, <laughs> you know, maybe that was it. Whereas uh, the progressives, quote unquote, were more corporately minded and it was, you know, like systemic things and it wasn't in the in the parlance at the time. And so the, the argument, I'm interested in what you say about this, the argument is that the weighting of the various sins has been skewed and that there is sort of an overemphasis amongst, um, for lack of a better word, traditionalists on kind of a more sort of, I don't know, sexual piety or, or, or sort of uh, morality in that respect over against these corporate structures. And, and that's been the way that they push back. And so it hasn't been necessarily that they disagree, although in, in practice, it does become that because essentially it says, well, until you get this systemic sin taken care of, we're not going to really talk about, you know, the particularities. I'd be interested if you've seen that or how you've, you've interacted with that. I mean, I have thoughts about it, but, but, but I'd rather hear what you have to say, or at least, or maybe, maybe I'm not clear about it, but, um, but that, that's at least when I hear you say that I can hear them push back or at least say, well, you know, we have our sort of, you know, big three commandments that are being broken. You have your big three and we're just disagreeing about the relative, sinfulness of the of the two with respect to where we're going to put our time and energy of the three excuse me yeah yeah you know i don't this may not be exactly relevant but luther has that quote about um he who does not defend the gospel at the point at which it is being attacked hasn't actually defended the gospel right right? or c.s lewis's illustration about you know if if there's a hole in the boat you shouldn't spray a fire extinguisher on it i do think that you look at sort of the backsliding that happened in the modern church when there was sort of a scientific modernism poking at the church, you had folks who compromised on like the supernatural claims of, of scripture and so forth. Now, I mean, or double down, interestingly enough, you know, double down, that's like the Marian dogmas and everything. Like, you don't think we're the Catholic church? Well, now we're going to make you promise that she never (laughs) sinned. I mean, we're going to, but I don't, uh, sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, no. But now it's like, you know, I don't think the culture of the world cares if you think how many fishes or loaves or where they came from or what supernatural thing. They just want to know, do you, you know, bend the knee to the sexual shibboleths of the day. And if you do whatever, in terms of the supernatural things. And so churches can just be like, look, we're very orthodox. We believe Jesus rose from the dead. We believe all these things. 
that aren't being really like attacked That's today. Right. And they think of themselves as defending of the gospel. And to me, it's just kind of, you know, that sort of basic discernment of we're going to defend the whole truth, but you would be derelict in your duties, particularly as a pastor to stand up in front of a congregation and to not catechize based That's on right. the questions of the day. I mean, look at the the Reformation catechisms specifically point out this issue of justification. But because, you know, they're just like some people will sort of casually say, oh, they're just so soteriological or whatever, justificationist or something. But it's because that was the question of the day. That's right. And 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 likewise, it just seems to me we have to answer the questions of the day and give an honest account. And maybe that will actually cost us friends that we thought make friends. We thought were enemies and make enemies of people we thought were friends, but we just have to be good stewards of this faith handed to us. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I mean, and I think along those lines, having the, the wherewithal and the training for lack of a better word and the, the time given in preparation for being a minister to see these connected points, um, you know, across time and theological history, you know, when you say whether you call it systematics, you call it, you know, integrated theology, whatever the case may be, because the, you know, the connection between arguing against the supernatural and then denying the created purpose and plan of God in and through your body, which is what's happening now. I mean, those, those are, those are almost directly related. And so, you know, in the, in the 19th century, perhaps they couldn't have conceived of arguing, you know, maybe Machen, for instance, in the turn of the 20th, um, could never have imagined transhumanism or transgenderism, but he knew that he was arguing against the people that denied the complete uh, legitimacy of the virgin birth, that there was something crucial in that, that if you gave away that, then perhaps the floodgates to whatever may come would come. And so we have seen whatever may come when that is rejected. And so I think that's the that's the sort of pastoral systematic challenge is to say, we, we can take what looks like a unique situation and look back through in a good Anglican fashion, scripture, tradition, and reason, and see echoes of it, uh, whether it's in justification debates, whether it's in authority of scripture, whether it's in the Arian debate. I mean, that's really sort of a repristination of what we're looking at now. And, and be able to stand confidently in the midst of this saying that we, we have the tools, we have the history, and we have the voice um, to say something um, strong, yet with humility and, and pastoral sensitivity to this current age. And I think that's exactly what you're, you're pointing out, is that a lot of what's being rejected is simply a, either an ignorance or a cowardice or some combination of both, uh, which is seeming to, to sort of downplay the, the current cultural point at which the entire gospel is being um, challenged. And we have to push back against that, which I know you're doing, which we're doing. Uh, Matt's just started. I've been trying to pull him along um, <laughs> here. In... <laughs> well, I, I also I also think you know, there's some good, just some good old fashioned uh, self deceit um, involved in, in a lot of maybe not, I'm not saying I don't want to you know, broad brush the entire ex-evangelical community. But I, I do think that because we're all human and we know whether we're Christian or not, we know deep down in the depths of our soul that we're guilty, that we're sinners. And one way is that one of the ways that both Christians and non-Christians try to escape that fact is by latching onto something that um, that kind of give might, might give us some moral justification. So, so right now in our culture, it's really it's really looked highly upon to be affirming and to be, be to support uh, various for lack of a better word, woke uh, causes. So if I can push for these things and advocate for these things and get mad at those who are you know, pointing to the interior life as if that's as important as the oppression that's going on over here, I can also help myself avoid the implications 
of my own sin. I can I can use this good work that I'm doing That's right. um, as a hiding place. So I never have to come face to face with with my need for forgiveness and 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 salvation. So again, I'm not saying everyone involved is doing that, but I but I uh, the social gospel back in the in the 20s uh, turn of the century and the reawakening of the wokeness uh, recently both have that kind of uh, that, that kind of quality. You can you can find a way to hide your personal sin by latching onto a social cause, well, um, and justify yourself. And what's interesting is you look at the history, and I know you're an expert at this, Matt, because you're reading about the French Revolution. But you know, with the when the the first iteration of the post-Christian quote unquote enlightenment, the repaganization, I like to call it, was the overthrow of sexual morality. You know, the first and so the 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 media chain that was quote unquote broken was that of monogamy and you know um uh well monogamy was a big deal, you know, that was in the adultery rules and sort of um and then as that was continued to progress. Then you had the emergence of the social gospel, which was a new form of uh, confession and absolution, uh, devoid of both the supernatural and the biblical content. And so, I mean, it's 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 all part of a whole, is what what I think we're we're saying and observing. And you know, Dustin, I'm I'm fascinated by this, particularly because your context. You know, you mentioned you know coming from voice into the um, the AMIA, which is interesting. What is your? I mean, this this article is a response, but in your your practical pastoral interaction with people, like, do you have? I mean, I know you don't have a toolkit, but what? How do you? You know, let's say I show up at your church and I've got, um, you know, a Rob Bell back tattoo, and I've, um, you know, just been reading Blue Like Jazz. I mean, I'm dating myself here, and and listening to um, uh, Jesus and John Wayne on audiobook, and um, I just cut off my man bun because it's 2021 or 2023, excuse me. But let's say I show up at your church and I'm like, um, I used to be an evangelical. How do you, how do you walk me? <laughs> how do you walk me the road of, you know, um, sort of redemption here back into the fold? Yeah. I, uh, so just in, in terms of my, my journey into Anglicanism, uh, my first call out of seminary was a church that just recently left the Episcopal uh, Diocese of the city, um, the church previous to, to being here at All Saints. And the pastor had been J.I. Packer's pastor for, for many years in Vancouver. And when Packer went under care of the Sydney Diocese, so too did that pastor I worked for. I was his assistant for many years. So the Archbishop of Sydney at the time, Peter Jensen, I mean, took a serious interest in, in the church. I mean, it wasn't the church under his care. It was the clergy, but still he came and preached and, and, uh, and that really had a big influence on me. Just that kind of, you know, Sydney Anglicanism as, as listeners may or may not know is just very self-consciously kind of John Stoddy evangelical Anglicanism. So that had a big influence on me as to the folks who come in and are rejecting evangelicalism. The first thing I would want to do is, is really hear what they mean by evangelicalism, because, you know, it's probably a coin toss. Some, some of the things they want to reject are probably fine things to reject, like about right. their, their upbringing, maybe kind of man-made rules or just like ways of, of talking that like now are outdated because they grew up 30 years ago. It's like, well, all Christians, you know, listen to DC talk or, or whatever it is. And it's like, be careful, yeah. be careful. The next words you say after the <laughs> Christian talk. Yeah. But it's like, they're not making the, the super relevant uh, references like Dukes of Hazard, like me. And they're just like trying to rebuff that. But really the subculture was 30 years ago. So it probably wasn't as cringe when they were, we were kids. I'll tell you what I do, especially with clergy. In fact, I didn't bring this because I was going to be talking to you, but I was just reading before today's noonday service. Have you ever read Thomas Charles, 
spiritual counsels by any chance? No. This is anybody who's interested in ordination here at All Saints. The first thing I, I give them, I just read Thomas Charles's biography. He's in the Church of England, was very involved in the, he, been, he died a Methodist in Wales, very involved in the Welsh revivals. But mm. much of his spiritual counsels, uh, Banner Truth, publishes this edition at least much of the spiritual councils are letters to young clergy and some of the suggestions he give that i think are really good for folks who have an evangelical background and are interested in anglicanism have to do with becoming more aware of an age that is not your own and when you do that it's hard to be embarrassed by historical figures in the same way so like if you grew up and your aunt was like, you know, if you went and saw a movie and anytime there was nudity in the movie, your aunt like just made, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Cover your eyes and your friends around. You might get really embarrassed, right? But if you read something on like, you know, chastity or or prudence or something like that from, from a church father, you're not going to get as embarrassed because that person isn't a living a living. Uh, well, you person. may be convicted yourself. That's what, <laughs> what am I doing here? Right. Yeah, exactly right. Not that I have such an aunt. Um, and so uh, some of uh, Charles's kind of commentary is have a broader horizon. Um, to me, that's helpful with evangelicalism. I mean, I think we tend to think of evangelicalism in kind of moral majority-ish ways. And the truth is the evangelical pedigree is much longer, deeper, and richer than that. And as, as all of you know, being Anglican, to try telling one of our uh, African bishop brothers that he needs to move beyond evangelicalism or, right. or that it's cringy to believe these things. I mean, it's actually this weird kind of reverse colonization in a way, especially if you're Anglican, to preach to our majority world brethren that they need to get with the times and and stop, you know, being led by the white patriarchy. It's like, what are you talking yeah. about? Well, You're the not, white guy. Like they're not us. actually preaching. That's what's so funny and so obvious is they're not. They don't really care about the majority world Christians. What they care about is the affirmation and acceptance of the uh, minority world social elites. I mean, that's it's. I mean, that's 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 all it really matters. Is like it's a way of virtue signaling to say, um, keep me on your byline keep me in your, in your social circles. Like, don't, don't cut me out of the think tank that I'm a part of, even though I'm the only quote unquote Christian involved. And it's just so obvious. And it's, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's laughable. It wasn't so pathetic, but that's, we've been pointing that out for, for at least as long as we've been doing this podcast, because, you know, we've all, we've all felt the pull towards the appeasement of the culture despisers before, you know, and we have had to uh, either be refined of that or we have succumbed to it uh, and that's where you know i think that's where this entire conversation circles because the resources are available i mean the idea that evangelical you know which even is like the earliest reformed cry you know the the, the good the gospelers you know like the fact that this is some sort of 1980s um patriarchal white nationalist christian aberration is just the most historically laughable thing like maybe there is a, a distinctly american her heretical version of evangelicalism which is an interesting conversation but the idea that that's the majority group or, or the representation or that there's not um people within evangelicalism critiquing from our historical position some of those excesses like for instance some of the you know, extreme nationalist excesses we saw during going both on both sides of the um, of the political spectrum, you know, where you have just just unabashed, you must vote for them, this person or you're not a Christian sort of thing on both the right and the left. You know, there are evangelicals 
down throughout history who have criticized that type of overt politicization of, of the, the faith. And yet it still remains an easy blunt force tool to get you into the good graces of the, the New York Times and the Atlantic and all the other places that will allow you a seat at the table as long as you continue to throw your ostensible brothers and sisters from not only in America, but around the world um, under the bus by claiming to have a more enlightened or more palpable view of what Christianity is. I mean, we talk about it all the time, like the New York Times loves Francis because they're like, finally, Francis is becoming more like us. We're more like Norway. And the more that the rest of the world can more like Francis and more like us and more like Norway, you know, that's Richard Rorty's mm-hmm. famous, you know, the more <clears throat> he said America would be better if it became more like Norway. And so, uh, you know, like that's the, that's the trajectory of the New York Times and Francis. It's like Benedict bad, France is good. We're best. And so we will be the arbiter. And it's just, um, it's, you know, historically, academically, theologically, in every single metric, it's easily identified, dismissed and corrected. And yet it's not surprising that we'll continue to pursue this persistent refrain because it is expedient to continue to have not only a place at the table, but something to say to hold yourself up over against those people who um, continue to persist in their fundamental, you know, obsession with the body and sexual morality and the divine and supernatural and all the various things that, um, that well define Christians. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but I mean, so your students, I'm interested in this, your students at King's college, I, mean, I don't know how much you're on the ground there, but you know, that's obviously right in the heart of Mordor. Um, and so you, um, you, you, do you see them wrestling with this in a, in a, in a distinct, unique way, or is it more, more acute or how do you, how do you sort of navigate that in the, the current milieu for lack of a better word yeah it's probably a self-selection thing um like the the last batch of of kids i had this past fall were so thoughtful and moored and grounded and i think it's exactly because you know the the kind of chaff or you know folks who will sort of go along with christianity because sort of why not you know it's what grandma believed in and why not there are less and less of those sort of folks. And it really seems like, you know, if, if you're going to seek out a Christian education, you're going to do so because you have deep conviction and, and reasons to, to be that. So those students were, were phenomenal and very thoughtful in this. I, my doctorate's in Catholic social teaching and it was really helpful for me. And then in some of the stuff I do in, in that class to help evangelicals who are wrestling with some of sexual ethic type stuff, to broaden the scope. And again, as I said in the beginning, you know, you think you're throwing off uh, Jerry Falwell and really you're throwing off Thomas Aquinas just to expose yourself to a broader perspective. And, uh, you know, maybe like the fundamentalist Baptist pastor you had, maybe he was misogynistic and he didn't think, you know, women should be pastors, but you can have some pretty progressive Roman Catholics who also don't think women should be presbyters and who you would never call misogynistic. So it's kind of helpful to bring in other traditions, whether it's Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, specifically as it relates to ethics, and just say, you know, uh, whatever prejudice or biases you saw in that guy you met at summer camp. There are other people who believe those things who That's don't right. have those same biases. So then it's just kind of a Bible study question of what's true. In your article, you're talking, you gave some advice about, okay, say you want, it. it it's not that um, evangelicals should never move beyond their tradition, 
but it's it's the reasons they're moving beyond their tradition and and the fact that they move beyond their tradition and just kind of stay in this realm of evangelicalism. And you gave some some example, two examples, uh, Richard Mao and uh, Peter Kreeft uh, as people who moved outside of their the traditions they were raised in, and yet maintain the kind of charitable a charitable memory of 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 their past and and that enables them to then flourish in a new and different tradition would you maybe i didn't mean to steal your thunder would you say more say more about that it just strikes me that if you if you're going to have like a transcendent outside of yourself standard against which to judge then you have to be able to see yes the bad of of that tradition you came from but also the good and you have to be able to see, yes, the good of where you're going, but also the bad and sin in that tradition. And Mao, I mean, my some of my favorite writings Mao's done, and he's done a lot that I really appreciate, have been on how those hymns from his fundamentalist upbringing have so shaped him, you know, about the bloody cross and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I just always so appreciated uh and then peter kreeft is uh, i guess still my colleague at, at the king's college uh used to teach there at least i don't know if he still gets down to to new york but someone who when he reflects upon his reformed a uh, kind of dutch reformed upbringing is is able to just apply transcendent and to me some of these issues get so emotional and heated because it really is just about the force of wills or the force of stories. Like somebody says, well, I had this That's abuse right. in my background. Therefore, like you have to just yeah. kind of like, did like leave behind all of these truth claims. And if you can like kind of say like, yeah, there's bad in both traditions. Maybe you did have an awful, I'm sure you did have an awful experience, but let's have a conversation about truth and then try to help purify the church like that's a very valuable that's right. conversation it, it seems to me to have the problem is when i say i'm an evangelical ex-evangelicals hear me saying i'm going to defend the absolute most egregious parts of the moral majority and then in in defense of those friends when they say ex-evangelical sometimes i'm like oh so you've sold the farm to the modern zeitgeist when really they're like no i don't want to be like paula white or something <laughs> and because that's in their head that's evangelical right so it kind of helps to step back and just if i can turn any conversation into a bible study i try to do that yeah. i think that's kind of the best best path forward I do think I do think that it seems to keep revolving around the most um, well, for lack of a better word, offensive aspects of traditional Christianity, namely the the cross, you know, the the atonement, the need for forgiveness. Because I, I think about all the things that various people reject, but it almost inevitably becomes with some form of the atonement. And you know, theologically, you can enter into that conversation a little bit. I mean, there is a, there are some historical discussions to be had. But fundamentally, it's the result of the atonement, namely that some egregious sinner could actually be forgiven. Like that remains the most offensive thing to an unbelieving world, is that you say, well, you know, such and such pastor was was a, of two minds. He, he the, the very thing he didn't want to do, he did. The thing he saw himself doing, he couldn't believe. You know, he saw within himself a war. You know, I mean, I've heard this before from one of the greatest pastors in the world, um, in history, in the Apostle Paul. And and so he was caught and he was punished, you know, or he was, he was, you know, removed, defrocked, whatever. 
but he, you know, maybe he even hasn't been restored, but he has been forgiven and redeemed and welcomed back into the body of forgiven sinners. And that is what continues to be such an offense to people. How could you, how dare you, didn't you know what he did? And of course, you know, depending on the severity, he may be in prison doing these things and, and probably maybe should be, you know, I'm not, I'm all for uh, absolution on the way to, to the gallows, even. I mean, you know, this is, I mean, that, that's a necessary function of the law, this side of heaven. Nevertheless, I'm convinced and more, the older I get, and the, the more I see this, the more I'm convinced that that's the piece that is, is really the most offensive. I, I just reminded of this. I went through an alpha class. So I was just sort of an observer because I don't know if you've ever done alpha, but I'm, I'm not supposed to say anything. And it's really, it's, it's really, I mean, I, I'd support it in many ways, but it's really difficult for me. And so, but eventually, as soon as it, they, they come to a point where they're like, well, what do you think, pastor? And so I'm, I give the like five, last five minutes, but almost without exception, we had a couple of people in, in the various groups that I visited who could not get over the fact that God could actually forgive and then they would list, you know, the, the no, most notorious sinners throughout history. Like that was their number one objection. It wasn't even sexual morality. It wasn't even the various identities. It was that particular point. And, it, and from that place, you can begin to work backwards towards a loving disagreement and ultimately, um, you know, pastoral response to all of the various cultural issues of the day. You know, if you could give, if you can, if you can get your head around that I'm reminded, I don't know where I read it. I must have back in college. There's a phenomenologist from Harvard uh, Divinity School named Harvey Cox. I don't know if you ever ran into him. He's, you know, he's an academic, well, but he wrote this book about uh, within the fire fell. And it was a phenomenology of, of um, Pentecostalism. And he talks about, you know, some of the most egregious kind of theologically from a sophisticated point of view, some Pentecostal churches, but they would have these things called like the bloodline. You know, and it was like at every church, there would be a call forward past the bloodline and it would be like whatever you've done, whatever you have have, um, you know, left undone, as we would say, pass this bloodline, commit again and receive forgiveness. And it was such a powerful moment. And there was a moment where there was seeming almost like a, there was a longing, you know, and again, I don't know Harvey Cox other than through his writings, but for that type of powerful engagement. And it goes back to your point about Richard Mao and all of the various quote unquote people from, from more traditional, what people would say fundamentalist backgrounds is when it centers around salvation, like forgiveness, the blood of Christ for the death of sinners, then whether it's Pentecostal or Methodist or, or traditional Catholic or Anglican or Baptist, like it's going to have some, some actual sinners receiving actual forgiveness, which is going to, which is going to look like some rather screwed up churches, but it's also going to have the power that's going to hold people fast to that over against the prevailing wind of the of the current culture. And again, I'm not. I hope it's obvious. I'm not. I'm not absolving you know broad brush any of the egregious behavior. And we spend we spend our time as pastors trying to to protect our own sheep and to to equip them and to have sheep keep short accounts so that they don't have these great falls. But in the, but that being said, some of the most poignant and beautiful pillars of church history that have been given have been precisely in those people who've suffered the greatest fall and have thus been seen the greatest redemption. And that's the point that remains the offense to an, an unbelieving world, I'm convinced. Um, yeah. And I've yet to meet anyone that, that if you scratch deep enough in their rejection of evangelicalism, it's, it's really the, the rejection of, you know, that guy did something bad and your theology said he could be forgiven. And you, know, you want to say like, well, I'm really sorry he did that something bad, but, but I'm also grateful that he, like I, can be forgiven. You know, I think that's at least part of it. I don't think it's all of it, but, but, um, but I do, it's it, like with you, Dustin, I share, it's a little bit like when people come to me and they're like, I don't, I, if they say something like, I don't, I don't trust marriage or something like this, you know, my first instinct as a pastor is like, okay, 
there's something deep and painful in that past, whether it was from a previous marriage, from a, from a marriage gone, uh, you know, their, their parents' marriage, from something. And so you want to tread lightly into that, but you wouldn't reject the entire concept of marriage as a result of the failings of, of one or even a group of people. And I think that's what we keep appealing to with respect to, to evangelicals. Yeah, I think that goes back to that point you were making about Pelagianism at the heart of this whole thing, which is which is where I think is a fascinating and and, and brilliant, um, brilliant point. I mean, but, but you you see that in um, evangelicals, you see, and I think it's probably connected to this idea of eminentizing the es- the eschaton. Like if we if we can just we need things to be perfect right now, and we need to, we need to latch on some to to something that will make things perfect. And so for the for the extreme charismatic, it's the name it, claim it. You know, if I just have enough faith, I can bring all the glories of heaven down to earth um, right now by the power of my faith. If we, if we could just find a way to punish and cast out the people who are not who who seem to be the oppressors, then we can have a we can have a utopian church or utopian society, and all will be well. And it's all it all goes back to this misdiagnosis of the human problem, um, and 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 if you misdiagnose the human problem, which is in endemic sin, you're not going to see the real solution, which is the gospel. Um, yeah. So I really thank you for um, that, and, and Dustin, thank you for being on today. Uh, yeah. I, I really, I guess we really loved the article you wrote. We'll put a link link to it. Um, we send out this this podcast and uh you'll get at least 10 20 more hits on it uh i think yeah well whenever (laughs) someone else besides us is talking we get we get like more a lot more hits so i don't know what should rotate each of us (laughs) off and then it'll be like game it'll be like um you know who who gets who gets chopped off the block as he he says nervously Uh, i just want to i just want to do this when nick is when nick is here i was a little disappointed nick wasn't here it was coy in vance but I'm yeah. happy nonetheless to to talk with y'all. Even we'll have to have you that. back because he'll ask. We will invite you back. Pointing to pithy questions. That's right. And, um, <laughs> that's right. We'll let you out without without putting you on the hot seat, Nick, or great grand inquisitor. But it is great to see you, Dustin. We're grateful for you and uh, pray for your ministry down there in Dallas. Um, and hopefully, look forward to having you back. I mean, depending on the stats, just as soon as possible. You know, that's the uh... <laughs> get the metrics in first. That's right. Right, right. That's right. Well, God bless. Have a happy, uh, well, great epiphany season. And um, we'll talk to you later. Thanks, y'all. Well, there you go. Good to know that I missed. Thanks, as always, for listening to Stand Firm this week. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy, as always, and a special thank you to Dustin Messer. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (laughs) 